rolling it over into our Lord's Supper. This week we're back in Malachi, Malachi 2.17. We finished with Malachi 2.16 last time, and we'll jump into 2.17. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, there are some on the table in the back right, my back right, your back left corner of the sanctuary, if anyone would like a Bible this morning. Next week is Thanksgiving week. As we step into this time of Thanksgiving, we have a tendency to make a point of dwelling upon those particular blessings that God has so wonderfully given to us. Now next week I'm going to preach a emphasis, Thanksgiving emphasis message, and as I do so, I'm going to ask a question. The question I'm going to ask is, why does God bless us? It's quite a question, is it not? Why does God bless us? And we're going to answer that question next week from 2 Corinthians 9. Why does God bless us? We'll answer that question. But this week, as we remain in the book of Malachi, we've been walking through the book of Malachi for some time now, uh, last six or seven weeks. As we remain in this book, we're going to ask a similar question, one that will set the stage for our mindset during this Thanksgiving time. Today's question will dig into our own expectations and experiences in this life. Within this season of Thanksgiving, now we are careful to give God the glory for all that he has given to us. The material blessings that we give, we are careful that we are giving God the glory for them. And yet, have you ever been troubled by seeing the contradiction of this concept of material blessing? You say, Pastor, what do you mean the contradiction of material blessing? Well, if material prosperity is in fact God's blessing, then does that not mean that God is blessing the wicked more than he is the righteous? If material blessing is in fact God's blessing, are there not men who scorn God, who hate God, who blaspheme God, that are receiving great blessings from God? Similarly, question we ask, does that mean that some people who seem to be quite godly, are in fact not being blessed by God. Does that mean that righteous men are in fact outside of God's blessing if they lack materially? Because of their lack of material prosperity. I don't know if you've ever tossed that question around in your mind before, but Israel did. We're going to look at that this morning. And as we do so, we're going to ask a question. What does it mean to be blessed by God. Next week we'll find out why God does bless us. This week we're going to ask what does it mean to be blessed by God? And what we will see from the book of Malachi today is that while material prosperity is truly a blessing from God, it is not a proper measurement of God's approval, God's favor, or certainly spiritual reward. Let me say that again. While material prosperity is in fact a blessing from God, It is not a proper measurement of God's approval, God's favor, or of spiritual reward. We're going to make this a two-part sermon. I apologize I had to do that, but there was just too much material. So we'll finish off the second half of this sermon this evening. For those of you that will be here, for those of you that simply cannot, they will be online uh, for you to listen to later. We're going to look at the first of two warnings this morning. Two warnings from the book of Malachi concerning our understanding of God's blessing and God's favor in this life and in eternity to come. The first point this morning, and this will be the point that we'll look at throughout the entire morning service, is this. 
Do not confuse material prosperity with God's favor. Do not confuse material prosperity, things like riches, things like plenty, in this life with God's favor. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage. We'll be parking in Malachi 2.17 this morning, but let's read Malachi 2.17 through 3.6 as we begin. God speaking to Judah here through the prophet Malachi. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that delighteth in them. Where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand as he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And I will come near to you in ju- excuse me, I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We will be focusing primarily on Malachi 2.17 this morning as we uh, emphasize this first warning. Don't confuse material prosperity with God's favor. Now as we continue through this list of divine controversies that God has with Judah, we find ourselves... In the last of three examples of how Judah had failed to honor and fear God. We can trace this back to, in fact, the first chapter of Malachi. First, they failed to fear him by offering polluted sacrifices, as you recall. Second, they failed to honor him by profaning his holiness. And then finally, today, we're going to look at how they failed to honor him by misrepresenting his justice. By misrepresenting his justice. God tells the people through the prophet Malachi that they have wearied the Lord. That's what he says in verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. This word wearied in the Hebrew was often used to reference hard labor or the results of hard labor. It was a word describing God as being exasperated with his people. Now you all are familiar with the concept of being weary. There are many wearinesses that we find in this world. There is the weariness of physical labor. I used to be a roofer. And I think of all professions, I would be hard-pressed to find too many that understand weariness more than being a roofer. You get up on that roof, and of course the sun is reflecting off the roof, and you're dealing on asphalt shingles, and so you're up at the 100, 110, 120 degrees on that roof. You're carrying heavy bundles of 90-pound shingles. You're moving back and forth. You're trying to be quick because you're trying to beat the heat of the day. You're up early. You're on the roof all day. You're dealing with nails. You're getting scrapes. You're throwing things off. You're up down, up and down ladders. You're, it's just, it's, it's a lot of work. That's weariness. That's the idea of this word. 
It's that achy feeling, but you know what? It's after a day of good, long, hard work. I never minded being weary at the end of a roofing day. I felt like I earned my money for that day. But you know, there's a different kind of weariness. Have you ever been wearied with words? It's the feeling you get after trying to have a civil discussion of differences with an unreasonable person. It's that feeling you get when you listen to politicians spout wonderful ideas, but you know that their lives and their policies will never live up to those ideas. That's a weariness of words. And there's really no silver lining to weariness of words, is there? There's a silver, li- silver lining to hard work, good hard labor. At the end of the day, you feel like you've accomplished something. But when you're dealing with weariness of words... There's really not much of a, a silver lining. You're just plain exasperated. You're just you're tired at the end of the conversation. You're frustrated at the end of the conversation. You just don't want to deal with people anymore. In this case, it is the weariness of hearing someone repeated say, excuse me, the same argument or the same lie, the same untruthful information. And that's what God was weary of. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? This is why. When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? See, there was an untruth being espoused. And not only was there an untruth being espoused, but that untruth was being propagated about God. And it wearied God. The people of Judah were guilty of repeatedly and severely misrepresenting the character of God. We all know that the world does this every day. Sinful man is ever eager to misrepresent the character of God. We know this. It is one of man's greatest manifestations of sinful pride that he is engaged in a constant effort to slander the character of God, the character of God in his word and in his action. But the reason why God was so wearied was not necessarily because of what they were saying about him. This is the things that the unbelieving world says all the time about God. But he was more wearied because of who it was that was saying these things. Who it was that was misrepresenting God. See, Judah, as we all know, was a part of the nation of Israel. Israel was a very peculiar, particular people unto God. This group of men and women were not simply another pagan nation. They were a peculiar people. They were in existence for a specific purpose, and that purpose was the glory of God. As we have mentioned many times, many of us have memorized Israel's purpose, that they would be rightly related to God so that they could show others how to be rightly related to God. That was Israel's entire purpose as a covenant nation, to be rightly related to God so that they could show others, other nations and other individuals, how to be rightly related to God. So can you begin to understand why God was weary? Can we begin to see that God's weariness was not necessarily because there was a people on earth misrepresenting him, there always have been, but because God's earthly representatives were the ones misrepresenting him. The very people that were set apart to represent God were the ones that were espousing untruths about God. It's as if you owned a company and you had salesmen. And the entire purpose of those salesmen was to go and sell your product. And they would go and they'd knock on a door and they would do nothing but tell people how terrible your product was all day. And then they'd go and they'd knock on the next door and they'd tell them how nothing but terrible things about your product all day. 
that would be pretty frustrating, would it not? You might expect that your competitors would say terrible things about your product. You might expect that those people that don't like you might espouse improper things about your product, but you wouldn't expect that those who you had specifically chosen to represent your product would be misrepresenting your product. That was the weariness that God was experiencing here. So let's look a little bit closer at these false claims that Israel was espousing about God. The people of Judah were claiming that everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of Jehovah God. And he delights in them. Literally, the people of Judah were claiming that God's love and favor were being shown to those that disobey God. That God was delighting in those who were doing wickedness. That those who disobeyed God's law were more favored by God than those who followed God's law. The second question that they were asking, the second claim, the misrepresentation is found at the end of that verse. Where is the God of judgment? Literally, why isn't God judging the wicked? Where is God's judgment? God says he's a God of judgment. God says he'll judge the wicked. And yet all I see is the wicked prospering. What is going on here? God simply delights in the wicked. That was their conclusion. God simply delights in the wicked. Now, let's be quite clear here. This is not an unusual thought for a believer to have. In fact, there are numerous passages of scripture that revolve around this very thought. Psalm 73 is the one I'm going to use as our example this morning. The psalmist was nearly overcome with the inequity of life for the righteous in this life. Listen as I read to you, or you can turn there. To the, let, listen as I read the first 16 verses of Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. He starts out well. He says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither. The waters of a full, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. I'm going to stop there. That's the first 16 verses. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been there before? You look at the prosperity of the wicked and you say, what is going on here? You look at their riches. You look at their fatness as the scriptures say, how, how healthy they are. If I get sick and go to the doctor, I have to hope I have enough money to cover whatever it is. If they get sick, they can buy whatever they want. They can find the best medical care. If I need a heart transplant and they need a heart transplant, they can get on the list and then they can probably bump themselves up a few on the list. Why? Why, God? Why, why so much prosperity for the wicked? Have you ever questioned the sacrifices that you've made for God? The psalmist here says, 
Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have done all of this righteousness and it's been empty. I've washed my hands in innocency. If there is no material benefit for my efforts, then why am I making the effort to begin with? Have you ever asked these questions before? Even Jeremiah. You think, well, this is a psalmist, okay? Maybe it's just not that often. Listen to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and 12, 1 and 2. He begins right again. He says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments, Jeremiah says to God. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their rings. This is not an uncommon thought for a righteous man to have. It seems as though every believer at some point in their lives comes to the place where he cannot help but wonder why wicked men seem so blessed in the midst of their sin and why God simply doesn't judge them. Why the righteous seem to have such difficulty in this life. Why it feels sometimes as though the righteous are being chastened, are being judged. This then begs the question, if a man like Jeremiah questioned the prosperity of the wicked, if a godly psalmist questioned the prosperity of the wicked, why did Judah's questioning weary God so much? What was different about Judah's questioning? Well, the answer is this. They wearied God because as they contemplated the prosperity of the wicked, their conclusion was that God favored the wicked. Their conclusion was wrong. See, we all perhaps have come to a point in our lives where we've questioned the prosperity of the wicked. But what was our conclusion at the end of that questioning? Let me read to you the psalmist's conclusion in Psalm 73. If you're still there, you can pick up with me at verse 17. We recall he was wearied with the, righteous, with the prosperity of the wicked. Listen as I read the rest of the psalm beginning in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Speaking of the wicked. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou, ha thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. You see the difference in conclusion between the psalmist in Psalm 73 and Judah in Malachi 2. The psalmist questioned the goodness of God and then he remembered God's word, God's faithfulness, God's love, God's judgment. And he said, how foolish was I. 
I have my portion in the next life. God will receive me up to glory. He is far from the wicked. Contrast that with Malachi 2.17, where their conclusion at the end of all of their questioning was this. Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Where is the God of judgment? That is why the Lord was wearied. When a rich man in the world, one who has lived his entire life for things of this life, loses what he has worked for materially, when his wealth is gone, when his family is gone, when his friends are gone, he has absolutely nothing left to live for. His purpose in life is gone and his eternal end is destruction. But when the righteous lose whatever prosperity they might find in this life, when the righteous live in a state of material lack, they still have just as much hope in eternity as if they had all the wealth in the world. They still have the same God. They still have the same judge in heaven. For the believer, his trust, his hope, and his affection do not rest in this life, but in the life to come. Judah wearied the Lord because their love and their loyalty were founded in the things of this world, not upon the things of God. And because they looked at this question of the righteousness of God from a materialistic perspective, they came to the wrong conclusion, and they wearied the Lord. The problem, then, is not inherently the question that Judah is asking, but the conclusion they came to. And so we learn our first lesson from Judah today. Do not confuse material prosperity with God's blessing. Ladies and gentlemen, since the world began, it has always been that the wicked find their portion in this life. Since the beginning of the written record, those who live unrighteous lives have still found material prosperity. And we know that it's still a blessing from God. Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 5 that God sends the sun to shine on the unrighteous and the righteous. He makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. The fact that the unrighteous are receiving the blessings from God does not mean that God is showing them spiritual favor. He's simply a God that is materially blessing the righteous and unrighteous alike as he sends the rain down from heaven, as he sends sunshine down upon them. You know, the same holds true for ministries. One would like to think that a church or a ministry that grows does so because God's hand of blessing is upon them. One would like to think that a church that has many thousands of members is, has many thousands of members because God has blessed their ministry. One would like to think that material prosperity in a ministry is a sign that that ministry has the favor of God, but we must be careful. We must be careful when we look at material prosperity and try to connect it to God's blessings. If there is one thing we know from Scripture, it is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. That God's ways are not our ways. That's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. As we look into the inspired record, we understand from 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to, conform, to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the that which is mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. For this purpose, as God states it in 1 Corinthians, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God's system doesn't work like man's system. God's mind doesn't work like man's mind. God doesn't see prosperity and blessing the same way we see prosperity and blessing. 
And it is our responsibility as God's people to conform our mind to God's mind. To allow God's way of thinking to override our own perceptions and our own expectations in this life. And I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. Don't think it's not difficult to be the pastor of a small church. To see a church that's still small. And to feel as though, is God blessing? And to wonder if God is blessing that church down the road because they have more people. That's our mindset. That's how we function. That's how we think. But if we're thinking the way God's thinking, and we place our loyalty upon the word of God, then perhaps we would perceive the blessing of God, the favor of God, spiritual favor, in a little bit of a different light. Now this is not to say, please don't get me wrong, that God does not ever materially bless his servants. This is not to say that God's people cannot find comfort and prosperity in this life. But to say that material blessing should be the expectation of those who follow God in this life is to deny a very basic understanding of scripture. Certainly there were men like Abraham, there were men like Isaac, there were men like Jacob, men who had great wealth in this life. But there were also men like Elisha. There were also men like Isaiah, men like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah. The list is quite a bit longer, in fact. As we think of Paul, as we think of John the Baptist, of men who lacked materially. Even the Lord himself had no place to lay his head, did he not? The biblical record reveals many men who were physically blessed, but also reveals many men who lived a large portion of their lives serving God in the midst of great material lack. So let's take a few moments this morning and attempt to understand God's design through his blessings, both physically and spiritually. You have three questions if you have that note sheet this morning. We're going to answer these three questions briefly. The first question will be the entire focus of next week's sermon. So if you just want to put see next week in that little portion, you can do that or you can take brief notes this week and we'll elaborate on them next week. Question number one. Why does God physically bless us? To understand God's design through physical blessing and through spiritual blessing, we need to first understand why it would be that God would physically bless us to begin with. Why would God give you money? Why would God give you comfort? What would be his purpose if he were to do so? 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15 will be our passage next week, and that is where we will answer this question. Let me give you a little sneak preview. God has given to us in order that we might liberally and cheerfully give to fellow believers in need. It is taught in this passage that through this liberal and cheerful, willing giving, these believers, those who we give to, will have a greater ability to thank God. And that through our giving, they might be able to be thankful to God. Then it teaches that this thankfulness to God on their behalf will redound unto prayers unto God for us because we were the ones that were able to give to their need. And so we see a circle here whereby God blesses his servant, his servant uses those blessings to bless others. Those people then are thankful to God for the blessings that they received from you and then they pray for you, thanking God for you and asking God to bless you for the blessings with which you have given to them, whereby you then receive blessings that you can give again to others. 
There is a cycle here whereby God blesses us so that we can give. So that we can bless others. So as we look around and we see people walking with all of their new gadgets and their nice cars and we say, why does God bless the wicked? You realize that they're not using God's blessings properly. You realize that all that they've been given, which is through the hand of God, as we recognize God blesses the unrighteous and the righteous alike, is being thrown back in God's face. So why would God take one of his choice servants and give you something that you can use improperly? He doesn't. He gives it to you so you can give. So you can bless. So that you can represent him. Sneak preview of next week. Question number two. What in this life brings spiritual blessing? What in this life brings spiritual blessing? Can I gauge the spiritual blessing upon Legacy Baptist Church by the number of people sitting in chairs? Can I gauge the spiritual blessing of Legacy Baptist Church by how many checks I pull out of that box at the end of the day? Can I gauge spiritual blessing by the car I'm driving, by the suit I'm wearing, by the phone I carry, by all of these material blessings, by how big my house is or how kept my house is? What in this life brings spiritual blessing? Recently, in our Sunday school hour, we've been memorizing through Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. I was going to ask everyone to quote it this morning, but we don't quite know enough of it quite yet for those of us that are in Sunday school. So I'm just going to read it to you this morning. Listen as I read Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Is God talking about material prosperity as he contrasts the righteous and the unrighteous man? He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. It's talking about spiritual blessing. It's echoed in Psalm 1. Did it sound familiar? Did it sound? Did that passage sound like Psalm 1? Let me read you Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whithersoever, excuse me, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's not about material blessing. It's about spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing is tied intrinsically to one's righteousness. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9.10, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits 
of your righteousness. The principle of sowing and reaping is clear. When you sow into the carnal, you reap the carnal. When you sow to the spiritual, you reap the spiritual. Let's ask a third question this morning. Our first question, why does God physically bless us? So that we can bless others. Our second question, why in this life, excuse me, what in this life brings spiritual blessing? Righteous living, righteousness. Now we're not talking about salvation. We know that salvation comes by grace through faith and belief on Jesus Christ alone. We're talking about spiritual blessing. Question number three. So then, why is material blessing not certain to the righteous? Why is material blessing not certain to the righteous? Material blessing often demands material effort. You must sow into the physical if you are going to reap physical rewards. But folks, God has called many righteous men to give up any effort toward physical abundance or comfort. Or rather to sow spiritual seed that reaps in spiritual blessing. Inherent in the spiritual mission of the righteous is the need to refuse physical comfort for the sake of spiritual effectiveness. Now God has called some men to be ministers in the midst of abundance. God has called others to be ministers in the midst of lack. Paul would often refer to this as the grace which he has given to every man. Perhaps you have been given the grace of a good job. You have been given the grace of money in the bank. It's a grace. It's a blessing. It's a gift. And God expects you to use it. Perhaps you have been given the grace of material lack. Perhaps you have been given the grace of an empty bank account. Perhaps you have been given the grace wherewith you get to rely on God day by day to meet your every need. There are other graces too, are there not? God has given some people the grace to remain unmarried. Whereas most of us would look and say it's God's plan to be married. We know from scripture that God has given men and women the grace to be unmarried so that they are not devoting themselves to a family. They can rather devote themselves more wholly to God. The scriptures teach that very clearly. And so why is material blessing not certain for us? Because God has given us all different graces. Perhaps God knew that if we received great material blessing, we could not handle it. Perhaps God knows that if we received great material blessing, it would divert us from the path. Perhaps God needs to teach us some lessons about reliance. Perhaps God needs us to refuse that which is material so that we can focus ourselves on that which is spiritual without the distractions. Material blessing is not guaranteed to the righteous. And that's God's way. That's God's plan. In fact, the testimony of the Apostle Paul is a testimony of complete material loss, forsaking everything material in order that he might gain the eternal and the spiritual. Consider his testimony in Philippians 3, 4 through 11. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul runs down his list of things that he had. Things that he'd been given by God. He'd been given a, a great intellect. He was above his equals, his peers, in intellect as a Pharisee. He had a zeal that most Pharisees didn't. He was 
Born a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was circumcised the eighth day, just like he was supposed to. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a man that had great things in this life. Let's continue with his testimony. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. See, Paul's testimony was this. I gave up that which was material in order that I might gain that which is spiritual. And perhaps God has called some of us, individuals and families, to do the same. Perhaps we can look out and say, why do the wicked prosper? Well, folks, the wicked prosper because they throw their entire lives into prospering. The wicked prosper because that's all that they live for. And when it's gone, it's gone. Somehow, we as humans have found a way to bottle up sorrow, bottle up contention, bottle up agony in little coins and pieces of paper, and we distribute them, and they leave people empty, and they leave people wanting, and they leave people in despair, and people kill for these little coins, and people cheat for these little coins, and people give up everything that is right for these little coins. And we look at them and we say, why are they prospering? Folks, they're not prospering. Materially, they have abundance. Until we come into the sanctuary of our God, then understand their end. There's judgment at the end of those little coins for those who are not born again. Again, I'm not preaching against money. Please don't get me wrong. So we must never forget whether concerning the wicked world around us or even concerning the prosperity of religious ministries, that material prosperity is not the same as God's blessing. And when we misrepresent God's character, stating that God's blessing and favor are upon the wicked due to their prosperity, we weary the Lord with our words. And we reflect dishonor upon his name. God's material blessing is upon those who he entrusts to take those blessings and use them for his glory. God's spiritual favor is upon every man who lives a life in conjunction to the word of God as God has called us to do. Now this evening we will explore the second lesson to learn from Malachi uh, 2.17-3.6. We'll look specifically at Malachi 3.1-6 and we'll find out that not only... Does God's material, or excuse me, material provision not reflect necessarily God's blessing or God's favor? But we'll find second that when God does judge the hearts of men, judgment will in fact begin at the house of God. Judgment will begin at the house of God. Let's pray.